All right, folks, welcome to the Crushcast. Today is going to be a spectacular discussion. Jan Williams, Hall of Fame advisor, and we'll reflect on, yeah, COVID, but also how it was like for him growing up as an African-American in the South. Jan, welcome. Looking forward to this discussion. Good morning, Jim. Well, let's start off with what it was like for you growing up African-American in the South. Let's look back. That's an interesting question, Jim. Um, I grew up in the, my childhood in the early 70s, 60s, early 70s. And we integrated schools in fourth grade. But none of my black um, friends that I went to school with, we never thought that what we saw on TV was for us. So the biggest hurdle as an African-American growing up in the South is to accept that possibilities also belong to you as well. That the good life that a life of abundance also belongs to those of color. And that's the biggest hurdle to overcome. And I, I, thankfully I had great parents. I had a father who was a carpenter who never allowed us to ever give up, ever quit. He had great work ethics and never allowed us to dream small. My greatest memory was my father and I were, I was eight years old, we were fishing one day and these jets flew over. They left that white trail of smoke. And I looked up at the sky and I said, dad, do you think I could fly one of those things? My dad said, son, if that white man can fly that plane, you can fly that plane. Don't ever believe that you can't do something. I, that has stuck with me throughout my entire life. And if anything has ever driven me, it's to believe that we are equal. We are all equal. You know, my mom was a very spiritual person and she never saw skin color. In fact, she adopted two little white kids <laughs> for like three years who, whose parents had gotten killed in a car wreck. So they lived with us for about three years. And uh, so it was an interesting childhood. It sounds like both from your father and your mother, you got a continuous stream of belief. They were constantly reinforcing that you had no limits. That is correct. That is very true. Uh, in fact, uh, my oldest sister was one of the folks arrested in Greensboro, North Carolina, the uh, Greensboro sit-in. Um, and I look at all that, it comes from my parents. She was so independent. She believed that she was equal to everybody else. So that, basically drove my thought process throughout life. Um, I was competitive. I always felt that someone else could do it, I could do it also. Uh, that applied to my going to Marine Corps. I chose Marine Corps because it was the toughest service. I wasn't drafted, I elected to go because I wanted to prove that I could be as bad as the baddest. You know, crazy mindset as a young, as a young kid. Uh, but When did you make that decision? I made that decision my second year of college. I was an engineering major and uh, they had a job there and I saw this Marine there and uh, he was, looks like a badass. And I figured, okay, I'm gonna be a badass too. Um, it was, I mean, he was, he was honest. He said, it's gonna be tough. He said, we only get in the officer corps. He said, we've taken a hundred, maybe 12 of you are gonna get through officer school, OCS. Okay, I said, great, I'll be one of the 12. And that uh, appealed to you? Absolutely, it appealed to me. Uh, I had no other place to go, Jim. I, uh, I didn't have any, uh, my parents weren't educated. So uh, I had no mentor to say, hey, you can go into this field or that field. Uh, uh, I got a scholarship in engineering. I went down, met my, my college counselor. And she said, what type of engineering you want to go into? And she gave out five different types of engineering. She said, mechanical, agricultural, uh, construction engineering. She said, electrical. I said, well, I knew electricity. So I said, I'll be an electrical engineer. Didn't know, have a clue what the heck she was talking about. That lets you know what it's like growing up in the South as, as a young African-American with, with uneducated parents. I had no clue what life was all about. But you were infused with belief and you chose Absolutely. to go after whatever was hard. 
Absolutely. And I credit a lot of my success to my time in the Marine Corps uh, because it taught me, it took me from being an introvert to being an extrovert. Because as an officer, you cannot be an introvert in the Marine Corps and survive. It's just impossible. Because you're dealing with a bunch of um, type A personalities uh, who all think that they're, they're the, uh, uh, you know, the Marine Corps has a motto. It's hard to be humble when you're the finest. And it's mm. true. <laughs> and that's why I'm, I'm always drawing people like Cedric, people who have this, this, this powerful mind that they can accomplish anything. That's, that's the key, isn't it? It is. It's a decision. So you made a decision, you were warned, this is gonna be hard. And that kind of attracted you, didn't it? Like you were told, this is gonna be hard. You said, all right, I'm in. Absolutely, same with this business. I let's go to business. that, let's, let's go to that transition. So how, how can you walk us through coming out of the Marine Corps and then coming into our business? Well, it's interesting. I left the Marine Corps with two master's degrees, <laughs> okay? Uh, I came to Atlanta because my mom was getting sick. I, I retired in Hawaii. I was part owner of a scuba diving operation, but I came to, to Atlanta because my mom was getting older and sicker and I need to be closer. And I applied to probably about 57 different jobs. I went on maybe 30 interviews. And out of 30 interviews, probably 23 told me I was overqualified. So one day I sit in the car after being told I was overqualified for, for a job position. I said, you know what? How in the heck does a black man be overqualified for anything, right? So uh, I'd met this guy named Darren Davis at the airport in LA on my way from Hawaii. He told me to reach out to this guy named Patrick Severe and see about coming to Equitable. I didn't, insurance is not what I wanted to do. But after all those interviews and get turned down, I said, what the hell? Gotta do something. So I called Patrick up. When I see Patrick, he said, I can't hire you. You don't have, you don't have a market. I said, okay. I called Darren Davis up. Darren said, well, I want to see Bill Lonis. Bill Lonis said, you have no market. Why would I hire you? I said, give me a year and I'll be your number one new agent. He said, okay, you got a year. It took me six months. Now, where did this belief come from? Is this you going back to your parents? And then it My just father. fueled in you a belief that, look, I'm going to get this done. My dad. It's interesting, yeah. even though we were grew up in the South, uh, my dad was a carpenter, he and his two brothers. And they were very successful because uh, they worked hard, work ethic. They worked very hard, saved every penny they had, and they, they did pretty well. Uh, so I think it all came from my father who never saw an obstacle. Uh, I've been in discussions with you before where we've done breakouts and I've been inspired by your thought process as a parent. How have you taken what you learned, what you were exposed to, and what has so positively impacted you and converted that now as the parent? It's interesting. I knew after living in Japan for 10 years that I want my kids to be bilingual. And so one of the things I have done is put my kids in international schools. So they're, they're trilingual. They speak Spanish, Mandarin, and English. Um, I try to expose them to as much as possible because that's what I did not have as a child was exposure. I had to drive, but I didn't have exposure. And it's, it's interesting, even though you can have the greatest drive in the world, exposure does create opportunities because it, it allows you to visualize opportunities that you did not see before. And so my, my goal with my kids is always to uh, get them exposure. Can you expand on that? What do you mean when you talk about giving exposure? I don't let them have limitations. You know, let it be travel, whether it be they, they, they scuba dive, they sail, they mm -hmm. deep sea fish, they surf, uh, things like that, exposure. Uh, my son and I do 100 mile bike rides. Uh, my daughter's a great tennis player. We go hiking. 
I spend time with them and I never let a day go by. Every morning I call my kids because I, I, I leave early to go work out at five. I call them right before they go to school and say, hey guys, have a great day in school. I love you. And every day when at school, I call them and say, how's your day at school? And my, my daughter, she's a chat chat. She'll talk. My son will say five words and that's it. I said, well, anyway, love you guys. Uh, I, I never let a day go by without my kids. I love them. So you go five for five twice. Yes. That's yeah. strong. That's strong. Now, what drives you today? What is it as you go about your daily life, whether it's with your children or with your clients, what is in your mind and what are you attempting to get done in, in terms of helping people? So at this stage, Jim, my goal is to create uh, some amazingly, I, got, I think I got five more years to do this. I want to create, uh, train, I got a, a young mentor, mentee right now. I want to teach him everything I've learned over 21 years and you know, show him how to work with clients. But in the same time, I'm now start going back teaching kids financial literacy. And I want to create a lot of wealth in the African-American community. Uh, we have, and especially in Atlanta, a lot of African-American business owners who've been exceptionally successful, but have no clue about how to make that wealth multi-generational. And that's my goal, is to, to assist those clients in making that wealth multi-generational. And to the extent that we have advisors that are hearing this message and this resonates and they want to understand what steps they could take to improve black financial empowerment, what advice would you get? I'll have this be the closing question. What would you tell them they should do? Focus on those organizations where you have African-Americans who are done well. Uh, I know everyone wants to help the, the African-American who can't, who doesn't have much. But the key is, if you want to have those who don't have much, have those who have a lot to make that wealth multi-generational, multi -generational, show them how to protect that wealth because they tend to hire more African-Americans. So you're going to have a greater impact on the community by working with the African-Americans of affluence versus working with those African-Americans who are non-affluent. Um, that would be my recommendation. And not be afraid. Just study, work hard, because I can honestly say to you or anyone listening to this podcast, I have worked with some of the wealthiest African-Americans that you could imagine. Um, and it came from a book I read it said, if you have 10 people you want to meet, write them down. And I did. I wrote down 10 names when I was on an airplane coming from Hawaii. And surprisingly, four of those people became clients. I won't mention their names, but everyone on this call, listen to this podcast, would know them if I mention their names. And that's the power of positive thinking. You write them down, people you want to meet, and make it a point to meet them. And you're going to be amazed to find that they are not working with anyone. You, you assume it because they're extremely successful. Oh, they already got someone. That's not necessarily true. They are so busy becoming successful, they never took the time to address protecting their wealth and passing it on. Well, Jan, this has been an inspiring discussion. You personify the impact of belief. A lot here for us to learn from. Thank you for all you do. I've really enjoyed it.